I'm with um, David Boyle, who has just written a book called Voyages of Discovery, um, published uh, in September by Thames and Hudson. Um, and the book is um, sort of a short, illustrated book, really, and um, it's got it's divided into several chapters, which focus on different European explorers. Um, so there's a chapter on Columbus, one on John Cabot, Cook, the Spanish conquistadors. Um, and at the back of the book, um, there's also a little selection of um, documents um, from the time with um, transcriptions of the documents as well. Um, and it seems so. It seems a very concise and informative little book, which is um, aimed, I would say, at the general reader. Um, but David, I just wondered, what was the aim of the book and your aim in writing it? Well, um, it was it, concise is the right word, really. It was uh, it was intending to um, uh, set out the the sort of the the high points of uh, European discovery of, of the world and um, and to put that in context as well. But it was also supposed to be doing something else, which was which was rather a, a newer departure, which was to to try and give a little bit more balance about the point of view of which, from which the story is told. And as far as you can tell it, which is not very far, um, to try and tell it from the point of view of the people who are also being, in inverted commas, discovered. Um, and that's what I've I've tried to do. Um, that seems quite a difficult thing to do, and I wondered what sources did you use for that? Because it seems that some of these, um, you know, peoples in the in the New World who were discovered, um, I would have thought that a lot of their they were oral societies, and um, they, you know, they would which would have been based on oral history. So, what sources did you use, and were there that many sources? Well, I mean, the short answer is it's a completely impossible thing to do. <laughs> but um, once you've accepted that, I think that uh, um, there are places you can look for, and you're quite right, of course, there's very, very, very few sources at all. Um, and what there is, is um, contemporary accounts of the Europeans about um, their communication with the, the people they discovered. There are... Um, some uh, interviews with uh, people who uh, may have um, known people who saw Captain Cook. Um, there are uh, uh, sort of folk memories which one can draw on from Native Americans about uh, in early encounters. Um, and there's a sort of growing academic literature, I think, about the argument, the basic argument, about uh, how it was the people who, who um, encountered Columbus and the other people uh, first regarded them, which is really an argument between people who, who think, as the traditional Europeans have tended to think, that, that they thought, oh gosh, this is a, a supernatural thing happening to me, and these are supernatural people. Um, and there is also another argument which is absolutely completely nonsense, and that people... Um, saw them exactly as we would have seen people and that they had no particular supernatural powers at all um, and you have to I think in doing a concise summary try to do justice to both sides of that argument and to what extent then I mean obviously because there are fewer sources written by the people who were discovered and whereas you know Columbus um, would 
had a diary, for example, Cortes wrote back to Charles V to um, give an account of what he'd seen. Um, so there's obviously a bias, um, like you said, which you've tried to reverse. There's a bias towards um, the people discovering. And to what extent then do you think your book has readjusted um, that balance? I mean, how successful do you think you've been in, um, in redressing well, you, the balance? Well, you can't redress the balance. I mean, for, for all the reasons that you say, you just can't. Um, but all you can do, I think, is to, is to try and... Um, be aware that uh, there were other people <laughs> involved in all of this and we don't know what they, they felt and they thought and um, maybe we can begin to build up some sort of idea but that's really as far as it goes but I think that's perhaps not quite the end of the conversation because you can begin to sort of draw parallels I think between the common experiences of um, you know, Magellan and Cook and, and Columbus and, and all of the others as far as we know um, which were, you know, let's face it, almost universally disastrous. But most of those encounters ended in hideous violence. Mm. Um, but then you notice that there are some that didn't, and that there were examples of friendships um, between the, uh, the discoverers and the discovered. And there were particularly, I think, a sort of a class of intermediary, which I think was a deliberate... Um, creation of the Portuguese who are sort of pioneers of all of this. Uh, it seems that the motives for these voyages of discovery were probably primarily economic. Um, so therefore, yes, I mean, two questions. To what extent was there a genuine desire to forge some kind of relationship? And if they, and if they did, why, why did they want to forge that relationship? Well, I th think you're right that the, the generally speaking wasn't, and that these were business propositions mainly. And uh, there is some evidence that uh, Columbus's obsession with gold um, first surprised and then unnerved the people he he discovered. And uh, I think also the thing that hasn't been written about very much is is the way in which um, the possibility of sort of sexual encounters was very high up on the agenda of the of the sailors and uh, I don't think we know very much about that um, but there, I think there are a number of hints about that so I mean none of those things are especially conducive to equal relationships um, so I think when they did have closer relationships with the people it was sort of by accident um, as much as anything else and because they grew to respect and to need um, the knowledge of the people they, they had found and that was unfortunately rather a rare thing in those days mm. and of course um, <clears throat> the danger about writing a, a book which is quite narrowly looking at um, just a few centuries at the heart of you know, all the history of world exploration and European period as well is that, is that that's seen as the most important part of history and uh, you know, clearly once you start looking at the other side of the question there are lots of other things to talk about but having said that there was clearly something important about the 1490s there was some reason why it all came together there. And that just within two decades or so, <coughs> the whole of the, the atlas of the world was, was sketched out with one or two exceptions. Um, so I think that uh, it was, you know, objectively an important period in the world's history and that it happened to be the Europeans who, for whom those, those um, technological and uh, conceptual ideas came together, that they, they made those great leaps forward. 
And um, just to conclude then, because you, you know, you've just said that um, obviously it's very difficult to write a full account of um, voyages of discovery, and it's a huge topic. Um, but to conclude, what one sort of aspect or voyage would you add to that narrative um, to provide a more comprehensive view? I mean, something that you weren't able to cover maybe in the book, but that you think is <coughs> important in terms of this period and later or earlier voyages of discovery? Well, I mean, there are so many other things to think about, um, you know, right up to the Victorian discoverers and earlier, the Chinese, of course, we know so, so little about that, and, and, uh, and the classic and the classical period and what, what voyages were made there. And I mean, the one thing especially excites me, which I wasn't really able to go into in, in this book, which is the... Um, relationship between Columbus and Cabot, which uh, for me, I think it's the mystery at the heart of this period, um, whether they were really um, coincidental um, voyages across the Atlantic within a few years of each other, um, using almost identical contracts, um, or whether in fact they were, as some historians have suggested, um, former business partners who fell out and went their own way. Um, and I think the implication of the latter, if that's true, and I, I think it is, throws the weight on those, um, on those documents they agreed with the, with the um, royal um, families they were, they were dealing with, <coughs> which were, I think, uh, you know, very, very innovative documents. So I think that um, Columbus and Cabot in that respect, are pioneers not so much of discovering America because, you know, by all accounts, other people had been there before, possibly by accident, <clears throat> but they were pioneers of intellectual property. They knew how to go to another place and still profit by it as individuals rather than handing over as the Portuguese did everything to the crown. And um, so I think that's what holds Columbus and Cabot together. And I think if we could solve that problem... Uh, what their relationship was, we would understand a lot more about what made the 1490s so important. And would you, um, is that a plan, an idea for a, another book? Well, I've written one book about that one already, which is what <laughs> I was, <laughs> why I was interested in, in broader discoveries. Um, uh, but even so, there is a huge amount more to discover, I think, about the two of them, and especially Cabot, who is a shadowy figure, who I think may turn out to be um, hugely more important than, than we realise so far. Right. Thank you very much. Thank you.